um, my husband and I have been married now for 17 months and eight days or something like that. I know, we made it. Um, we, when we were dating, uh, right about the time that when you start dating somebody and I hadn't dated a lot before you, so it turns out when you date, you get to the point where it's serious enough that you get brought to meet the family, okay? So the first night that I came over to my mother-in-law's house, who's sitting right here, uh, I, I, it was a big deal, and I was definitely falling for JD, and I get there, and it's his mom and his dad and his sister, and they decided that the purpose of the night was to tell stories about JD. The whole night. That's what we did. But of course, I'm like, you know, having this, you know, fluttery feeling, so I'm like, oh, tell another one. Um, but then as the stories came out, they were things like, JD ended up going down a hill on a bike and got his head stuck when he was 12 in between some pipes of a fence, and the jaws of life, I think, had to remove him. That's what almost all the stories were like, you guys. So I, <laughs> like, I'm not totally sure if you were warning me or if you were making sure I knew or if you were trying to scare me away. I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, but in complete honesty, it was one of the best nights. It was so fun. And I left feeling like I knew him better and I left feeling like I wanted to know more of these stories and I wanted to know about the 32 years of his life that I had not been a part of. And I wanted him to know the parts of my life that he hadn't been a part of. When you're in a relationship with somebody, you want to understand their story, right? You want to understand the things that have happened in their life before you came into their life, and you want to understand the story of their life every single day. As we've had this conversation about the Bible, we're really talking about how this book was given to us as God's story. Now, this was his family telling me the stories of his 32 years, but imagine that uh, O'Brien, some, some Irish O'Brien family, had been writing down the stories, the oral, the oral story of the O'Brien family, and they had been writing it down to Irish people, and then it was, it was translated from Irish English into American English. That was a joke. Okay, and, and I'm trying to understand it, so it's really more like that, right? The, the extended family, God's family, the family of God, writing down the story of God really just some of the story of all of who God is couldn't fit in a pages of a book or a library as we've been talking about the Bible. And when you're in a relationship with God, which God invites us all into through Jesus, there is a desire to understand God. There's a desire to understand this being that you're in a relationship with, and knowing their story is a huge part of that. It's different than uh, something being written to you to tell you exactly about their story, but the history of the story is written. You see what, what I'm saying, the, the connection that I'm making? Now, I think just for, just this is a free tip. For dating though, okay, don't bring the stories out too soon, all right? And if you're online dating, this happened to me, okay? When I was online dating, a guy sent me like his own autobiography before we met. Way too strong, do not come on that strong, okay? Start with the relationship and then you wanna go deeper. This is the same with the Bible. You start with this relationship with God. You want to understand God. Maybe you're just at a point where you're just toe-stepping into just beginning to know God in your life. And as you do that, you begin to open these pages and try to understand who God is. And as you get to know God in a deeper way, the story gets deeper for you and more meaningful. And I want to suggest today that that's endless, that the, deep and the, meaning, the, de the depth and the meaning will continue on and on, just like the stories of JD's life will have different meaning to me 17 months from now and 17 years from now, right? This conversation has been so important, you guys. Um, as we've been, we, we, the series, if you're the first time you're here with us, we're calling it the Bible, question mark, meaning that there's a lot of questions about the Bible. I think those are totally normal and I think they're good. I think it's good for us to approach something like the story of God with some wonder and some questions and some curiosity. 
But what I hope that we've done over these last few weeks, and I encourage you to listen back to some of these conversations, is to move from maybe some sense of suspicion and skepticism towards curiosity and wonder. Because I want us to stay in that space of curiosity and wonder. But sometimes we have to begin to, to, to pursue freedom from the skepticism a little bit, don't we? And we have to begin to pursue some of the freedom from uh, the cynicism and some of those things. And so if that's still where you're at, that's totally okay. I've been there, I'll be there again. This is part of life, it's totally normal. Um, but we wanna continue to step into curiosity and wonder about who God is. And so as we've had this conversation, we've answered a lot of questions. Um, and maybe some of you noticed as we've answered the questions, there's some answers, but there's also more questions that are brought up from it. That's amazing. That's what I mean by depth of meaning and going deeper, deeper and deeper and deeper. So if you're still kind of working through some of these topics, like last week Michael talked about, is the Bible reliable? And he said, the Bible is reliable to do what the Bible is intended to do. And if we want it to do things that it's not intended to do, then, well, yeah, that's not going to be reliable. Like, for instance, for it being a handbook for life and giving you very clear-cut steps. It's not designed for that. It's a story. Uh, it's not a science textbook. I mean, he went through some different things. It, it's not those things, but it is reliable for what it's designed to do. He talked about that. We've been talking about how interpreting the Bible is really complex. And so in a group of people who are very diverse and different, we might come to different conclusions. And that can make us feel a little bit unsettled because oftentimes uh, human beings want to go towards people who think like them and look like them and behave like them. But as children of God and as people pursuing the kingdom of God, we're pursuing unity in diversity. And so it's okay if sometimes we come to different conclusions and we have to figure out how we love each other even when we have conversations that are kind of wrestling. So these are some of the things we've been talking about. And so I really encourage you to listen back. So today, I feel like where we need to go from here is the question, how do we read the Bible well? If you're beginning to say, okay, okay, some of that, I'm getting that, the story of God, I don't know about that story about your husband, but the story of God, I'm on it. Then how do we read the Bible well? If you've been here before, I sometimes do what I call seminary for everyone because seminary is pastor school and I went to, to pastor school and I teach at pastor school and so does Pastor Michael. We teach at schools that train pastors. But you guys are so smart and I don't think that that's, that information is reserved just for pastors. So that's why sometimes I want to talk about that with all of you. I hope that's okay. So most of this sermon is kind of seminary for everyone. So sit up, be ready for that, okay? But because I think it's such a crucial thing to talk about how we read the Bible. So what I want to uh, propose at the very beginning of this is this. When we come to the Bible, we often come wanting answers. I think that's a good thing. I know I do. I often come wanting answers about the Bible or answers about things that are, I have questioning in my life. And I think that that's good. But I want to also say that at the core, what the Bible helps us do is not just find answers, but to ask good questions. Maybe to ask even better questions than we're currently asking about who we are, about who God is, about who uh, God made us to be in this world. I think the, the Bible can lead us to have deeper questions in our life. So I have this slide that, that is up here. Often what we want in life is more answers, but what we really need are better questions. So I'm not against answers. I think that if you actively seek answers, you will find them if, it, if you want to find them. But you'll also find more questions. And, and that means that when we read the Bible well, we need to ask good questions. Questions are amazing because they're generative. When you ask a good question, it produces more good questions, usually deeper questions and more meaningful questions, because that's what they do. And so I want us to become a little bit more comfortable with questions as we're pursuing answers. So we're going to talk a lot about the, the questions that we ask about the Bible and the questions that we need to ask when we approach the Bible, because that is the best way to read it well. 
And like I said, my heart for us is to move from skeptical, suspicious, maybe a little bit cynical, to a little more open and curious and courageous as we step into this ancient text that is complex at times, for sure. So we, um, let's see, I, I want to look at a few places in John, the book of John, where we see people questioning Jesus. Just two stories. They might be familiar to you. And then I want to show you a, just a little bit later in the book of John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is giving us a promise as it comes to our questions, okay? So I want to start there, and then we'll move into some really practical stuff, okay? So the first spot is the story of Jesus engaging with Nicodemus, okay? And it's in John 3, if you have a Bible. We'll have it up here on the screen. Uh, Jesus is engaging with this man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, which means he's a religious leader professionally. That's what he does. Uh, He's a professional religious leader, and uh, he is not only a typical one, but he's actually a leader of other leaders. He's a part of the ruling council. Now listen to this story. He comes up to Jesus, picture this conversation happening at night because we think this is happening late at night and maybe around a fire or something like this. This man approaches Jesus and this is what happens. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus said. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You see how Nicodemus started with a question? Jesus responded, and then it resulted in an even deeper question. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. And then the story actually goes on and on, where Jesus is responding to Nicodemus' question, and that results in a deeper question, and then a deeper question, and a deeper question. I actually think Nicodemus left that night without all the answers he was hoping for. I'm pretty sure he did. Yet he is a person who is there when Jesus is crucified and coming down off the cross, coming from a religious leader to being a true disciple of Jesus in that time. I'm pretty sure even at that time he didn't have all the answers he would have hoped for. But it's interesting to see how Jesus engages, almost steps towards him, right, when he's asking the questions. Okay, interesting. Just the next chapter over, a story that maybe some of you are familiar with that we often call the woman at the well. This is in chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 4. This is a time where Jesus has gone from where he was to the next place called Samaria after he was where Nicodemus was. Maybe the next day, we're not exactly sure, but it's intentional that these these stories are close together. Listen to what happens. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is by himself at the well, but there would have been other people there. And there's this woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, not even speak to them. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It continues on there in that story as well. She asks a question and he answers and it takes her deeper to another question, to another question, to another question. Eventually this woman comes to a conclusion, I don't understand everything about this guy, but I think that he is this savior that we've heard the followers of Yahweh talking about. And even as a Samaritan woman, I believe that there's something special about this guy. And he, she goes and tells all these people in Samaria, and it says just a few, uh, few verses later, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. I don't think she had all the answers that she would hope for, but she continued on from there and stepped into this. Do you see how Jesus was stepping towards her and responding to her, even though she had all these questions and she was unsure, starting off with, why are you even talking to me? Now remember the fact that they're at a well named after Jacob. That's going to be important later in this segment of seminary for everyone, okay? So what do we see here? Jesus is welcoming these questioners. He suggests that there's more to discover as he's responding to them. And here, I think a great spot that I want to land on is in John 16. So we're just moving through John a little bit here, okay? John 16, this is, these chapters are documenting the last few hours that Jesus has with his disciples before he's taken, and then eventually the next day crucified and taken to the cross um, to conquer death after three days. So this is the last time he's with them before they're going to see him three days after his death, where they didn't expect to see him come back to life. So Jesus is feeling like it's really important some of the things that he says to them. And he's actually said a lot. In my Bible, what Jesus says is in red. And so it's just red, 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 red. He's saying a ton to these guys, probably because he's feeling a sense of urgency, as you can imagine. But in the middle of all of this, I want to point out verse uh, John 16, 12 through 15. He said all this red stuff, okay? And he gets to verse 12. I have much more to say to you. <laughs> More than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So he's, he's communicating that it's Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit that are communicating together. It's not speaking on his own. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, that is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus right there talking about Father, Son, and Spirit very clearly. Can you imagine? He's just spoken all this information to them, and then he says, there's way more that I probably should tell you, but you can't handle it. <laughs> and the reality is, is that's, that's us, man. There is so much more that I think God would just love for us to understand, but our brains would explode in our hearts too. I always say, man, I wish God would just write something on the wall for me instead of me having to try to discern. It's kind of hard to discern what God's saying to you, isn't it? I always wish God would just write something on the wall like it happened one time in the Bible. Maybe that could happen more. Man, if writing came on the wall, I'd probably be like, mm, nah, that's not God. You know, because that's how I am. That's how people are. You can't bear it all. You can't get it all in your brain and your heart at the same time. God loves us and gives us his story the story that we're kind of in the messy middle of that the end we see in Revelation, but we're in the middle of this story, looking back on it and looking forward. 
And God loves us enough to give it to us as we can handle it. And Jesus' promise is what? That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will guide you to all truth. Not in an instant, because you can't bear it, but in your lifetime. Trusting God, trusting the Holy Spirit, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, speaking to us, will continue to guide us day by day towards all truth. Not perfection, not getting it right every single time, but will continue to guide us towards truth. I think that's an incredible promise. I think that's a promise that we can hold on to as we get into the, to the gritty details of what it looks like to really ask good questions about the Bible. That as I have these moments all the time, I'm, I'm sure they'll never go away, where I'm trying to understand something from an ancient text and my brain feels like it's really being stretched and in that moment, I have to remember that Jesus said, I will guide you to all truth. Trust me. One day at a time, you don't have to figure this all out right now. One day at a time. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some really practical ways to do that, so let's talk about that. But you see here Jesus welcoming the questioners, stepping towards them when they ask questions. You see how it leads to deeper questions. We see throughout Scripture that, that questioning the Bible or questioning Scripture, the Torah, the very beginning of the Bible, that the, the Jewish community would have read, questioning and wrestling has been a part of that from the history of Judaism. Did you know that Torah scrolls still today are, are, print, are written on parchment paper, the special paper? So if you were to go to a, a, one of the Jewish synagogues here, the special Torah scroll would be on parchment paper, and each page would be sewn together by the, the sinew or the thigh of a kosher animal. Why would they do that? Why would they try to make sure that the thigh of the kosher animal is what's sewing together these pages? Because they want to remember every time they turn a page that Jacob wrestled with God. And when Jacob wrestled with God, if you know the story in the Old Testament, he leaves with a blessing but also a burden because God gives him a, a, a tap, a love tap that causes a, his hip to be displaced. And so when a, a Hebrew person, when a Jewish person appro approaches the Torah, they're approaching it saying that everybody who comes to the scriptures is going to get into a little wrestling match with God. Isn't that awesome that that's the invitation? And they wanted to remember that so much that they made sure that the pages were sewn together by some, an animal that represented that story. Jacob's well, where Jesus was wrestling with this woman who didn't think she belonged in God's family, and he tells her that she does. Significant moment. That kind of stuff just blows my mind. So to read the Bible well, we need to ask good questions. We need to ask curious questions, courageous questions. We need to ask questions that take us deeper. So let's get into it a little bit here. The, uh, the overarching questions that hopefully if you're around Mill City for a while, we are always asking have everything to do with this conversation about the Bible. And those questions are, what is God saying and how will I respond? Or how will we respond? So some of you are nodding because you've heard me talk about this before. This is so important. This is what the life of discipleship is. What is God saying to you, to us, to your family? And how am I going to respond? What, what am I going to do about that? So crucial. Those are the questions, the overarching questions we bring when we come to Scripture. But to do that, we got to go a little bit deeper. So my, uh, my seminary for everyone, put up that next slide here. Uh, oh, by the way, millcitychurch.com backslash training. I wrote all this stuff down on a blog so you don't have to write it down. Oh, okay. I thought there would be like a thumbs up or something. But you're welcome. All right, so... Uh, we talked about this briefly, exegesis and hermeneutics. We're going to dig into this. Exegesis, discovering the original intended meaning of a text through careful systematic study. So this is going back and saying, what did it mean back then? 
Hermeneutics is saying we want to find contemporary relevance to our lives today or to the church or to our world. This is an ancient text, so we have to try to find contemporary relevance, which is not always as easy as we'd like it to be, but it's possible. And so we want to be people who discover the, have exegetical questions and hermeneutical questions. And I have brought some for you today. They're also, there we go, see? They're on the blog, millcitychurch.com backslash training. Okay, let's, let's talk through them. And I'm going to use the story of the woman at the well as an example as we go. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively easy one. Some of this work would be a little bit harder if we were doing a text that maybe wasn't as familiar, but it's good for this example, okay? So the first question, exegesis questions, discovering the original intended meaning. That's what these questions are about. The first one, when? When is this passage in the timeline of the big God story? This is an important question. So this story, the story of the woman at the well, is in the Gospels. It is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. It's important to know that it's before the church started, which we see recorded in Acts and some of the letters. So when this woman is being engaged with at the well, there's not like the church to go to after that, right? Because that was later. So the, the Jewish people were still gathering in synagogues and other places. And Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So that's where it is in the big God story as we talk about it with the kids. The big God story that we see. Important question to ask. The second question is where? Overarching question, where? Where within the canon? Last week we talked about the canon a little bit. The canon is our word for the library that we call the Bible. The books is what it means. Where is it in the canon? So I mentioned that. It's in the Gospels, in the New Testament. Where, where within that specific book is the passage and what is surrounding it? So you want to look at what's happened before and after, and then where is the setting of this story or this poem or this genealogy, whatever you happen to be reading. Okay, so this story, it's in Samaria. This is important because this woman is a Samaritan. Jesus is coming onto her turf, and he is engaging with her where she already is. That's huge. That's actually a big deal. And so when he engages with her, she's thinking, this is where we're from. You're not supposed to talk to me here. This is a big deal. Uh, also, we notice in the, in the passage, it's right after the story about Nicodemus, isn't it? I just flipped the page over. That's important, too, because Nicodemus was a Jewish religious leader. He is the person that's the right person, right? This is, in, in that perspective, at that point, that's the guy. If we can get that guy on board, we're good, because he's got power in the community. So you contrast, I think John intentionally contrasts this story with this religious leader with this Samaritan woman who has a past, that's super important that you see that happening. And then what happens right after that? All these Samaritan people are super intrigued about Jesus and filled with questions and saying, I believe enough to start asking questions about this guy and pursuing who he is. Sometimes belief is actually having enough courage to ask the questions, not having all the answers. So here we have this. This is so important. And it says that many Samaritans believe they don't have all the answers yet, and they say he really must be the savior of the world. Wow. Okay, the next question, what? What is the genre? Super important question. Once again, it's a library. So while it is overarching, I would call it a story, it's a story that has a lot of different types of genres in it. Story is usually narrative, right? But there's also these other genres. I listed them for you. Historical narrative, law, wisdom, Psalms or songs, poetry, uh, gospel narrative, which is where this story is, apocalyptic, visions of the future things that might happen and that's not in that moment right then, and then letters, a lot of letters that are written. And those letters are written to specific people, not, not to us. They're written to people back then that we can take hermeneutically into our today. 
okay? Right? What is this passage about? What else is going on in that culture at that time? And what can the original language tell us? So what is this passage about? This passage is about Jesus in the middle of the day needing water, going to a well, and there's a woman there who has the container that he needs to be able to get water out of the well. This is something that would happen normally, that people would come to this well and gather, and if you didn't have the proper thing, you couldn't get it, okay? So this is just a thing. This is what's happening in this setting. It's important just to say, well, what's actually happening here? What, what's going on? The disciples have gone to probably find food or something, and so Jesus is thirsty. He's tired, it says. He sits down, and then he engages this woman right where she is at. Pretty different than trying to get her to come to some other place, right? Uh, what else is going on in that culture at that time? We already mentioned the Samaritan situation. The Samaritans and the Jewish people did not talk. We know this from other stories like the, the Good Samaritan, where it's surprising that the Samaritan is the one that helps the person on the road, who in the story we would suggest is Jewish. Okay, we also know at that time that there was a very different situation regarding women. And so when this woman ends up later on in the story, uh, Jesus says she knows she's had multiple husbands, we might read that story and say, wow, man, she gets around, okay? That's my, that might be what we say. At that time, there might have been multiple husbands for reasons like she needs to have uh, what she needs to survive every single day because in a culture where the men had all of the power and the resources and the money and women were sometimes treated as property, she could be stuck in a really rough spot. So we don't know exactly what was going on, but that's really different the way that women experienced first century culture than we experience now, that would be so important to pay attention to in this story. Do you see what I'm saying and why these questions are super helpful? And then finally, uh, what can the original language tell us? Okay, so this is a real fun seminary for everyone. Um, I made a little video for you. Okay, so watch this. It has no sound. I'm just going to describe it. I'll, I'll describe what it is if you can't read it, okay? So you go to the website, biblehub.com. This is online. Type in John 4.10. I saw a word that I thought was really interesting and I go to interlinear, you can look at this up online, look at all the words in Greek, the word gift, oh, there's all the other places that the word gift, the gift that Jesus is saying he's offering to her, interesting, click on it, let's see what it means in Greek, it says specifically that this is a gift without repayment, it's, that word in Greek means a free gift that you can't actually buy, you can't repay them, it is given hence not acquired by merit or, quote, entitlement. It is, expresses a brand of giving that highlights the beneficent desire of the giver. That word gift, if you were reading it in original Greek, would mean an extravagant gift that somebody is giving that there's no way that you could repay them for because they love you, so they're giving it to you. Whoa! Right there, it's free. You could go on that website for free. Websites are usually free. Not all of them, that one's free. You can look it up. The depth of meaning just by saying, what, is, what do they mean by gift here? So many resources to just say, how can I understand more deeper the exegetical question, what, what's happening at that time, before I try to think about what it means in the here and now? Okay, just a couple more things. The next question would be, who? Every time you're asking who the characters are of any piece of scripture, for sure, the main character is God. Every time. That's not always how we approach some of these stories, is it? It's like, David, and sometimes God's there. Right, right, no, no, God, and David's trying to respond to God. I think David had the same two questions that we have. What is God saying, and how am I supposed to respond? The story's about God. 
and then humans trying to figure out how to engage with relationship with and respond to God. So we always know who. It's always God. In this story, we see uh, in the woman at the well, we see it specifically as the person of Jesus. But then right in chapter 16, we see all parts of the Trinity. That's where we see who God is in this. And then the Samaritan woman is the other character, okay? Who were the original hearers and readers, and where might they have been coming from? What perspectives might they have been coming from? The book of John is a really interesting one because unlike some of the other Gospels where it seems like they're writing to the Jews or to the Greeks or to a certain group, this book seems like it's being written to a multiplicity of hearers, people who are very different, the way that John is writing. So scholars have some different questions about exactly why and who, but I think that's, that's kind of an interesting thing about John. It was written to a broader audience. In fact, that's why when I get, connect with somebody who's just learning about Jesus for the first time, I tell them to read the book of John because it's written to the most broad audience to help us understand. Okay. Finally, nope, two more. Why? Why might this passage have been important enough to be written down? That is a good question to ask. Why is this story, this poem, this piece of genealogy that seems like just a bunch of names I can't pronounce, why was that important enough to write down? Because nothing is written down here if it wasn't important. That's a good question to ask. How about, why is this passage a part of this overall story of God? Why is it crucial to the overall story of God? I think this story was written down, even though it seems like nobody was an eyewitness because Jesus was there without anybody else. So maybe that woman told the story and it ended up being, but eventually it was written down because it was so significant that Jesus was crossing what had seemed like a cultural boundary you weren't supposed to cross, times two with a Samaritan and a woman. And he was in that very action speaking identity, purpose, value into two groups of people that had been completely undervalued and to very clear ways had been oppressed. That's why I think it's an important story. I think it's an important story for other reasons like the fact that it happened at Jacob's well, like I just mentioned to you. I think it's important for other reasons because uh, when God called Abraham, he said, your family is gonna be a blessing to everyone. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, that's still not happening exactly. So he's saying, listen, I meant everyone by just that moment. Finally, so what? So what? So what? I mean, that's a good question. What does this tell us about God? And what does this tell us about humanity? I think those questions should go in that order. What does this tell us about God? This is an easy one because Jesus is talking about himself and he says, I have a living water that when you drink from it, you will never thirst again. What does that tell us about humanity? We thirst. And we try to quench our thirst, don't we? We're being metaphorical for anyone who's lost. Okay, so yeah, we get thirsty for water, but we thirst for things. We, we want things. We feel unsatisfied and we desire more. And what Jesus is saying is, God, I will satisfy Everything else, you have to get, you'll get thirsty again. But my presence, what I have to offer you, will satisfy you. Even though, yeah, the next day you'll still need water and food. But what I have to offer you spiritually, you'll never go thirsty again. Super significant. All right, let's jump to hermeneutical questions. First one, how? Okay, so hermeneutics, finding contemporary relevance. Are you guys with me? All right, we're almost done. How? How might God want to speak through this text? Great question. How does this text lead me towards God's truth? How is my heart open to the Holy Spirit? Heart needs to be open to the Holy Spirit because Jesus said the Holy Spirit is who leads you to the truth. 
So when we come with the cynicism that's really started to cause our heart to be hardened, which is a callous, like a calloused heart isn't soft enough to be able to be open, to be guided, okay? That's why we're taking steps every day to figure out how we can trust more without having every single answer. How might God want to be speaking to me and am I open to the Holy Spirit? Now, let me just give an example. So say I was meditating on this scripture. I think it could be something that I would easily ask myself. What is it that I thirst for that only Jesus can satisfy? That'd be a good hermeneutical question that would come. Maybe God's inviting me to think about that. Maybe not, but that's a good question. How might God want to meet me in my everyday spaces just like Jesus met that woman in a place that she probably went every single day? Are there places where I go every day that I don't expect God to show up, but God's been going, I'm right here. That'd be an interesting thing that God might bring to the surface if I was studying this. I don't know. It might be different for you. The next question is, I just call it senses. What are you sensing? Okay, think of your five senses, but what seems to resonate with you from this passage? What words or phrases seem to stick out to you? In my Bible, I just underline them, the words that stick out. What do I sense and feel and wonder? What questions come up inside of me that might be deeper than the questions I came into it, the story with? These are so good to pay attention to. I don't know what those would be if you were listening to the story as you just did, but if you feel anything right now, what are you sensing? That would be so important to pay attention to but in our everyday chaotic world that's so distracted, we don't pay attention to that. What are you sensing? That's how God speaks. Finally, two more, who? Who, who are the people I will invite into the process of discerning this passage and its application to my life? You guys, it's actually really recent in history that people try to do this by themselves, really recent. Partly because it used to be that not too many people could read, so you had to get together in the first place to hear it. The individualistic nature of our dominant cultures here in North America keep us from asking this question. We can't fully understand what God's trying to say to us through scripture by ourselves. I just think that's a fact. You cannot fully understand and and really grasp the depth of meaning of what God's saying to you in scripture by yourself. Some, but not the full depth. You have to have other people in there. This is a super important question. For what? This is maybe my most important question, okay? And if you know me, you know why. For what? Why would God be speaking to us? What is God inviting us to do, to feel, to think, to be, to pursue in our life? What might the Holy Spirit guide me to do, say, pray, live because of this passage? I don't know what it would be for this, but perhaps you would pursue people who had been seen like outsiders in your life because you see Jesus doing that here. That could be something that you take from this passage to do. Or maybe you'll take time to journal and pray about the ways that you have tried to quench your thirst with so many other things. And you, all of us, we fail to realize it's only Jesus that can quench this. And maybe what you'll do is take some time to just journal or pray and, and, and ask Jesus to forgive you for how often you've pursued all the other quenching things instead of him. You see how if we're going to study it, to understand it and exegetically and then hermeneutically, it's also for, always for something. For these two questions, what is God saying and how will I respond? Put those questions back up there. What is God saying and how will I respond? The two most important questions. And to understand what God's saying, we have to look back. All right, I'll have the the band come up. It's actually, to be honest with you, kind of a concern of mine that people who are trying to follow Jesus read the Bible just to know it more and to have it in their head more. Because I kind of think that can end up being a barrier 
to what it really means to live into your faith life because we feel like just having this story in our brain versus in our heart and it changing our life is good enough, but then we miss out is what I'm trying to say. We miss out on a deeper relationship with who God is, this God who wants to relate to us first and because of that relationship wants us to understand his story because that's how we go deeper and deeper in relationship with God. God is often found in the questions, especially the deep questions, just as much as in the answers. So here is my my heart for you, okay? As we're having this conversation, we're almost done with it. The day we stop our pursuit of questions about scripture, we stop being curious and we miss out on the adventure of following Jesus. When we stop asking these questions, I get concerned about that and I almost wish it'd be better if people didn't know it at all than for it to not shape their life. What would be the point? I hope that this series is something that answered some of your questions, but I also hope that it helped you to be encouraged to never stop. Never stop asking those questions because when we stop, we become disengaged not only with this book, but with the relationship that this book represents in our lives. God loved us enough to give us his story, just like the O'Briens loved me enough to give me JDs even though they were crazy. It's a good thing that we have our whole lives to pursue any relationship because our relationship with God will have questions until our last day. That's what a relationship is. I want to tell you, I, I think this is the most interesting book ever, okay? I know that's like a nerdy pastor thing to say, but, but I'm serious. It is, just as an ancient text, it's fascinating. Like, there is such a depth of meaning. It's the deepest, most complex, yet so profoundly simple thing that exists. And then the fact that I've experienced God through it takes it from something that's interesting to life-changing. And I want that for you, even if it just means some baby steps at this point in your life. When you love somebody, you want to understand them, you want to learn about them, you want to understand their story, and this is why God gave us these pages so we could wrap our minds around it, so that we could step into this adventure. An adventure, by definition, means you don't have all the answers, you don't know all the the destinations, you don't know everything that's going to happen. If it wasn't an adventure, then it would have certainty and everything, right? But an adventure means there's uncertainty, and that's why you go after it. That's what we get to do as we pursue the story of God, a God who actually wants to know us and be known by us. We're living right now in the messy middle of this story. And this is an opportunity to have a dependence on the Holy Spirit to guide us to all truth. Because if we had all of it right now, we couldn't bear it, could we? So we open our hearts to be guided by the Holy Spirit to pursue all truth as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do, not in an instant, but in a lifetime. Can we do that? Can we open our lifetime up to that? We're going to go into our time of communion that we have every week. And uh, the night that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide you to all truth is the night that he sat with his friends. And he said to these people who he so loved, this group of men, probably some of the women that traveled with him, and he just wanted them to remember everything that he said. And one of the ways you remember things is when you physically do something. And so he said, when you eat this bread right now, it's, it's representing my body that's going to be given for you. Take it, eat it, remember me. And and this cup, when you drink it, it represents this new promise, this covenant in my blood that's for you. And I want you to remember me. So when you drink it, remember me. They didn't even get it all. Why does he want us to remember? Oh, the next day they would know why. And we need to remember too, don't we? Remember that we don't know all the answers, that we never will. 
but that day by day we can get in a deeper relationship with this Jesus who said, when you take this bread and this cup, remember me and the promise of my relationship with you and what I've done on the cross to conquer death so you can be in relationship with the God of the universe. I'm going to pray a blessing over you if that's okay. May God fill your hearts and your minds with curiosity. May God even encourage you to be critical thinkers. May God give you intellectual, emotional, and spiritual questions and curiosity about the Bible and who God is, but may God set you free from the chains of cynicism. May God set you free from the burdens of suspicion. May God set you free from the things that do shake you at the core with the knowledge that even as you grow and change and as your understanding of God changes, God does not change. God can be pursued and known. May that be the blessing in which you step into the realities of your life this week with. In Jesus' name, amen.